it seems like you're like an ass. It seems like you're presenting to me. (laughs) Does it look juicy? You guys, we made it to the final episode of the podcast. Not ever, just for this season. The final episode of season one of I Made Her Watch, the podcast where two best friends force each other to watch things they might not otherwise. I am your poverty-stricken host, Vanessa. And I am actually almost out of debt. (laughs) (laughs) How the tables have turned. Oh yeah, my name's Stephanie and I'm also your host. Wow, you just, you had to rub it in there. Well, I thought we decided that you have investments. You have a very large investment right now. And that's just where all your money is. It's tied up in investments. And I know that sounds like a scam. It might be a scam. Who knows? But for the now, Toronto real estate market is a scam. Definitely a scam. <laughs> okay. To kind of tune in audience people out there, Vanessa is a new homeowner. That sounds so gross when you say it out loud. Does it feel like you have to be an adult? Yeah. It feels like I've got my big girl pants on and they're uncomfortable. They're like, they're the kind of pants, let's say you wore them at the beginning of a night out and they were skin tight, but they were okay. And then you had one tiny morsel of food and now you've got like a muffin top over the pants and they're not sitting right. And it feels like your ass is going to bust out of the seams. And then you have some drinks on top of that. And now they're just, they're looking gross. They're not looking good on you. That's what my big girl pants feel like right now. Very constraining, just not nice. So you're saying that being in debt hundreds of thousands of dollars is uncomfortable. Just a little bit, but (laughs) you have to mention (laughs) the amount that I'm in debt because I could forget that for a while. And then you said it now and I remembered. In all honesty, I'm happy with my purchase, I think, overall. We'll see in a few months' time when I've actually moved in and settled down how I feel. Get back to you then in season two. But for now, I'm happy with the purchase. I'm just mostly overwhelmed by everything that I've had to do and all of the money that I've had to spend and will continue to have to spend. Well, we just found out I have to spend like 90 bucks on a new (laughs) USB hub. So there's that. True. True. We all, you know what? We all have very unfortunate expenses in our (laughs) lives right now. So we're just going to be cautiously optimistic for the future. But there is one thing we can be very optimistic about. And that's the fact that we're actually recording in person this time. Like barely. Barely. (laughs) So we're vaccinated. We're also fully vaccinated. Last time we recorded was well over a month ago. I Mm -hmm. believe it was over the May 2-4 weekend. If oh my God. I recall correctly. And between then and now, we stood in a very long line for about six hours to get our second dose. So essentially, we decided we're going to record in person today. We're in my room and we ran into some problems. Technical issues, which we're not unfamiliar with since this whole season, I would say, has been characterized along the way by technical issues. Yeah, you would think there would be less of them now that we were in person, but no. There are more. 
I would say there are more, and these new technical issues have taken longer to resolve than the old ones. Yeah, we were supposed to start recording like an hour and a half ago. Oh, there's the OnlyFans. (laughs) (laughs) To explain the OnlyFans reference, Vanessa sitting on my bedroom floor across the room. Not for social distancing reasons, because <laughs> we're vaccinated, so we don't we have still, to. Okay, no, that's not true. Me. You still should probably socially distance, but we're part of each other's bubble. And I'm on my bed, and Vanessa's laptop is open, and we're still using Zoom to record this. Well, actually, both of our laptops are open, so we have the visual of each mm-hmm. other virtually, and then the visual of each other in person. Yes. Virtually, I see Vanessa's crotch. Well, okay, let's be fair to the listeners. It's not my crotch. It's like my upper thighs. Okay, so just a teaser. Well, if I lower my monitor, you'll get a great view of the crotch. However, as much as I like Estefanie, I don't really want to give her all the goods and little nooks and crannies just yet. (laughs) You have to subscribe to the OnlyFans account and pay (laughs) substantial money for, for the goods. Are you telling me I do not get a best friend discount? No. Did I not start this podcast by saying I was poverty stricken? (laughs) I don't understand. Am I not being clear? Oh, well, you know what? I would have left you a very good tip. (laughs) I think you can can tip on OnlyFans. Oh, really? I've never been on there, but I believe that you can tip because there was some sort of big hubbub, hubbubaloo. Some sort. I don't know what the term is. It hubbub, hubbubaloo, hubbub. So I got it right the first time. Yeah. So the rest is just me being an idiot. Yeah. Oh, damn. Don't cut that part out. (laughs) So yeah, there was this big hubbub about them capping how much you can tip on OnlyFans. And that was making people not very happy. Why would they cap how much you can tip? There was some sort of scandal behind it, I think, involving a celebrity. I'm not 100% sure. I don't follow the OnlyFans. I think that's bullshit. If someone's, va- if someone's vagina has earned a massive tip, then they should get a massive tip. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> Did you notice the euphemism? There? <laughs> yes. Okay, good. A massive tip. <laughs> you know, this is reminding me of that time that it was the Broadchurch episode. Where we kept going on with plumbing jokes, and then we just didn't stop. And I feel like the massive tip joke is going to continue on for the rest of this episode. Anywho, (laughs) on today's episode, yes, I made a Stephanie watch the 1999 American romantic comedy Runaway Bride. Yeah. Okay, so I will start off by being honest and saying that like I've watched this movie multiple times before, usually just like bits and pieces. I've probably only watched it once in full. I don't remember the first half of the movie very well at all. I usually only catch towards the end of it. So my perception of the movie was a little bit different when I watched it in full this time. Oh, thank God. I thought I was going to be disappointed in you. No, I (laughs) very much disliked it. Okay, Okay, I'm not going to ruin my answer at the end. Okay. But what the fuck? Yeah, I feel like it's a movie, I certainly hope, it's a movie that would never be made again in today's day and age. It was here. 
you actually might be able to see it. I am holding up my notebook and there's like a little corner. Mm -hmm. Can you read that? Oh, my vision's really bad. Angry. I I can't read it. Okay. I'm going to read it out loud. At the very top corner of this page that I'm showing you, it says, shitty people you're supposed to like. Oh, yeah. I think that summarizes the movie quite well. That is the problem with this movie. You know what? I think this is the first time, though, that we've watched something mm-hmm. where the re- the the requester. No, that's not it. What's the term? What's the turn of the for the person that makes the other person watch? We should know this because we came up with this concept. But the <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's give us a moment. The <laughs> the no, we're both hosts. Yeah. The Ooh, the torturer and the torturee. I like that a lot. Yes, because it, it could sometimes... It could uh, feel that way. Yeah, it can definitely feel that way. I definitely felt that way today. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and you know what? Sometimes by doing harm onto others, you can also do harm onto yourself. I learned that this time around. Honestly, I didn't realize how much I disliked this film until I watched it in full again at this age. Yep. But we'll we'll go over that. Yeah. We can go over this and what made this film so absolutely shitty. Mm -hmm. It's a shitty film with shitty characters. Yes. That we hear nothing about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So to do a little bit of background here, Runaway Bride is a 1999 American romantic comedy. It was directed by Gary Marshall, who I'm sure everybody's seen like at least one film that he's made. He did Pretty Woman as well, which was also with Richard Gere and Julia Roberts. He's done Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve, The Princess Diaries. He did Overboard, which I didn't realize. Have you watched Overboard before? Yeah, I think that's with Goldie Hawn. Mm -hmm. And Kurt Russell. Yeah, and it's very disturbing. And I also watched the remake of it, which is also disturbing. Okay, so that theme continues. Yeah, I'm noticing like a little bit of a theme in his movies. I think it was maybe considered progressive at the time that they were made. Are you sure? Well, Overboard is pretty old. It is quite old. I guess so. The 80s. But there are some issues. There are some feminist issues with these films, some of these films. He also did A League of Their Own, starring Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. Julia Roberts, of course, is Stephanie's favorite actress. Mm. <laughs> this screenplay was written by Sarah Perriott and Josanne McGibbon, and it centers around a New York reporter who chooses to write a column about a small-town handy woman who has left a string of fiancés at the altar. Interestingly enough, and I'm not surprised by this, actually, the film was in development for over a decade. Literally, probably a decade behind. I feel like that is even behind for like the 90s when this came out. I think so, too. I definitely think so. I didn't realize just how problematic it was, again, until I watched it this time around in full. One of the reasons, actually, that the film was really delayed was because of script issues. 
Surprise, surprise. But one of the significant script issues was that the film struggled to explain why Maggie continued to run from her fiancés when she reached the altar. I'm sure there were other things that were going on as well, but like that was one of the things that they had to resolve. You would think that considering that's the primary focus of the movie, you'd kind of sort that out first in terms of the script. Like you think about the background motivations of your characters and why they're doing what they're doing. I would think that's like integral to any script. 100%. Mm-hmm. Because like the entire time I was asking myself, why is she doing this? Yeah. Because they try to make her out to be very likable and in moments that she mm-hmm. is, but then she does things that are very hurtful mm-hmm. and unlikable. Yeah. But then again, so does everyone else. Yeah. Literally every single person there. I think she actually, I mean, you might have a different opinion of this. I think she actually might be the best character in terms of like, she does do unlikable things and she does do hurtful things. But I feel like if I understand the reason behind why she does it, at least she's got a better reason for it than some of the other people. Yeah, I think I agree. I think I'll reevaluate Yeah, after we speak about it. But... Even though you're the less shitty person, you're still a shitty person. Absolutely. Absolutely. So just to give you a sense of who was previously attached to the script at various times, I consider these people to be people who dodged a bullet here. Angelica Houston, Gina Davis, who was in A League of Their Own and also in Thelma and Louise, Demi Moore, Sandra Bullock, Ellen DeGeneres, and Tia Leone, we're all up for the role of Maggie at some point in time. Christopher Walken, Harrison Ford, Mel Gibson, and Michael Douglas were all considered for the role of Ike. And Ben Affleck had actually been considered for the role of Bob. I can't picture it. <laughs> uh, why? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so the film does use some callbacks to a previous movie that Julia Roberts and Richard Gere had done together. That's Pretty Woman, which... Also has its problems in it. I think it's definitely more apparent as the years have gone on. But overall, a better movie. I think we'd agree. It was a commercial success overall. I think mostly because fans were excited to see the two of those actors paired up again. But in terms of reviews, it was generally panned by critics. Can I ask, how many years after Pretty Woman was this made? This is a good question. So this is 1999 and Pretty Woman, I'm pretty sure, was in the 80s. But let me just double check. Pretty Woman, 1990. So nine years later. I found I enjoyed Pretty Woman much more. Mm -hmm. I mean, it has a whole bunch of issues, but it's one of the few films where I actually liked Julia Roberts' character. I generally do not like A lot of the characters that Julia Roberts plays, because Mm. I find that she plays a lot of shitty people that you're supposed to like and cheer for. Yeah. So there was that, I don't like her character in Steel Magnolias, even though I really like that film. I do not like her character in My Best Friend's Wedding. Oh yeah, she's meant to be quite unlikable in that but you still are supposed to root for her at the same time which I get your issue with that yeah and uh, there's a couple of others that I can't remember off the top of my head probably because I blocked it out Julia Roberts is not a draw for me I didn't have very high expectations for this film and you know what I will say this though 
it surprised me in the sense that I was even more disappointed in it than I thought I would be. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you know what? I was watching it thinking when I first wanted you to watch this, I thought she's going to hate it because of Julia Roberts. And then I watched it and I was like, no, she should hate it for a whole bunch of other reasons. <laughs> Julia Roberts is the least of her concerns in this movie. <laughs> You just wanted me to hate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I wasn't expecting to hate it too, though. I thought it would be something that like, like a too hot to handle. It's not. It's not. But just as a side note, I am watching Too Hot to Handle season two right now. I am loving every minute of it. And I'm so excited to force you to watch it because it's so good. Like think of the first season and then make everybody a thousand percent shittier and hornier. And you've got season two. We discussed this and we're like, I'm not going to like it. So really, all you're going to be doing is torturing me. Yeah. And I thought I said that that sounded good to me. But then we know what my retaliation will be. I'm willing to take the risk because this is how I usually operate. So I might know that a negative consequence is coming up. But until it actually hits me, I'm just like, oh, la-di-da, it's fine. No, no worries. (laughs) It's like you don't learn your lesson. No, I never do. (laughs) (sighs) It's going to be fine. That is next season's issue. Exactly. See, and as long as I can say that several months down the line, I don't care. Oh, but don't worry. I am planning. I will eat all of these words right back up when I Oh, 100%. And I will go back and I will play them for you. (laughs) To further my embarrassment, (laughs) I'm poor, I'm humiliated, and I'm tortured. (laughs) Okay, so just in case people are wondering... This movie is not based on a true story, but in April 2005, a Georgia woman actually came to be known as Runaway Bride. Her name was Jennifer Wilbanks. She was set to marry her fiancé, John Mason, in a lavish event, truly lavish, 600 guests and 28 bridesmaids. That sounds like a nightmare, and I could already understand why she wanted to run. Any case, just a few days before she ran away, there was a nationwide manhunt because her family thought that she left under suspicious terms. She emerged three days later saying that she had been kidnapped and raped by a couple. All of this turned out to be lies. She's in a relationship now with a man and has been in their relationship since 2010, just they've never married. But at the time when she was labeled as the runaway bride, The coverage, the media coverage was like insane, apparently. It had turned into like a soap opera. It's a very kind of crazy story. She had made up a lie about being kidnapped and raped, but it just, it really took off. I think it kind of got a little bit sexist in some of the things that were said. And her image was even used to recruit new police officers for the Albuquerque police force. It showed like a woman in a veil and wedding gown running away. And the police officer who had actually escorted Jennifer Wilbanks back was in the photo apprehending this bride. And it said something about, are you trying to run away from your old job? Join Albuquerque police. That's not okay. No. (laughs) So I feel really bad for this woman. And I know this happened well after the movie, but I feel like the same sexist undertones are running through a lot of this stuff. And that was six years later. I kind of go back to that police thing for a moment. Yeah. (laughs) There's a reason why there are a whole bunch of very power-hungry, abusive officers. We realize that this is not 
you know, rod and apple situation. It's a rod and barrel situation. Yeah. These sort of ads are part of that rod and barrel. Yeah. Like it's an institutional problem problem that it targets people that are probably not suited for the job. If you're joining because of the pride running away on the poster for the Mm -hmm. recruitment. (laughs) Yeah. Like don't. Yeah. Please don't. (laughs) That shouldn't be your motivation. Absolutely not. So I was actually listening to Criminal. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, one of those podcasts that have been around for a very long time. I've listened to like for a very long time. And there was actually the most recent episodes out because right now we're like today is July 3rd. Oh, dear God. Yeah. So the most recent episode that came out was with regards to a woman that was actually kidnapped and raped because I believe they had been targeting her boyfriend's ex and then they confused her oh goodness the boyfriend's ex the boyfriend had nothing to do with it like I think the primary target was the boyfriend's ex and then they both just somehow got caught up into it but then the police had thought that they had made it up even tried to get them to confess to this fake kidnapping oh Jesus and it was just like such a horrible situation And a big reason why apparently didn't believe that this had happened was because they had watched like Gone Girl or something. And they're like, oh, this seems so like extreme that it has to be from like a movie. Oh my God. Well, I'm not sure if that was the main motivation, but I know that was a factor that played into it. But it was so disgusting because this poor man, you know what I mean? His girlfriend had been like kidnapped and he had wasn't supposed to go to the police and he still went to the police. Yeah. And it ended up making just everything worse. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they sued the police department. Yeah. I think they only actually got like two million out of it, if I remember correctly. That's it? Mm-hmm. And by the, they still went to the media and they're like, they wasted police resources. And they put them up as like this bad example and all that. And it's just. What it's was just, he supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. But like, it seems like this woman actually did fake her kidnapping. She did. She yeah. Did. I mean, yeah. she did a bad, bad thing. But I think in hindsight, when everyone looked back at the case after the media firestorm had died down, they realized like clearly something was going on there. And you never know what somebody's mm-hmm. position is too, right? So who knows? Maybe she was in a very unhappy relationship with the guy. Maybe I'm not saying this mm-hmm. is the case, but there's a whole bunch of reasons why somebody might abandon a wedding like that just mm-hmm. before, including that they might have a partner who's abusive. Mm-hmm. And maybe that they see that as their only way out of the situation because their family won't understand. Nobody else will understand and they just need like a quick escape so I don't know her background I don't think it was because of that but I think she was really put through the ringer for it and I think in hindsight they kind of realized the true victims here were just her and her family who had to deal with and of course the ex-fiance right who had to deal with all of this and the media attention and like constantly being harassed and followed Yeah, but I do believe those things should not be lied about because then we have situations like the one that I just explained where someone that actually did go through that ordeal is not believed. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. But because it's so high profile and then it comes out that it wasn't true, people believe that it's a much more common issue than it actually is. Yeah, exactly. Because people are now able to name a high profile case where... It was a false report, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's very problematic. There is one more thing 
why Julia Roberts might have been ideal for this role. I don't know if you know about her romantic history, but it's interesting. (laughs) I remember she dated Matthew Perry. Yeah, she did. Mm -hmm. I think that started up after she was on Friends for one of the episodes. Mm -hmm. Her first high-profile like celebrity relationship was actually with Liam Neeson in 1987. I know, weird, right? Yeah, I just made a facial expression. Yeah, so (laughs) (laughs) I can see those now in person. Yeah, and Um, virtually. (laughs) Both of them. (laughs) So shortly after ending things with Liam Neeson, she moved on with Dylan McDermott in 1988. They had met on Steel Magnolias. He plays, I think, her husband in that movie. So they were engaged throughout their nearly two-year relationship. She ended the engagement in 1990. She broke it off so that she could be with Kiefer Sutherland. These are Um, a lot of big names. Yeah. So they were together starting in 1990. After dating for less than a year, they announced their engagement. But she actually called off the wedding three days before it was set to happen in 1991. And what did she do? She ran away with Kiefer Sutherland's best friend, Jason Patrick. Oh my God, no way. Yeah. Wait, so, so was this before, sorry, was this before the Serenity Bride movie? Yeah. Shit. Yeah. So this would have <laughs> happened in 1991 and the movie was in 1999. So she ran away with Sutherland's best friend, Jason. They had a whirlwind romance uh, that followed their trip to Ireland, but then they split in 1992. So they weren't together for very long. She dated some other guy, Lyle Lovett, in 1992. She married him in 1993. They divorced in 1995. Then she was with Matthew Perry in 95 and 96. Then she was with Benjamin Bratt, who was the male lead on Miss Congeniality. They split in 2001, and then she married her current husband. Danny Motor in 2002. I mean, mind you, running away with your fiance's best friend is yeah. a little bit. More that active. one is suspect. <laughs> yeah. That one. Mm. The rest of it is just. The rest of it, I feel like it's just normal dating, but it's yeah. in the public eye. It's normal yeah. dating. People get married, people get divorced, and stuff exactly. like that. Don't run no, away I, with your fiance's best friend. Best friend. Yeah. So apparently Sutherland was really pissed about it at the time. And then afterwards, <laughs> <laughs> so <Don't> shocking. <laughs> I know. Shocking, eh? Afterwards, though, he said that I think it was like sometime in the 2000s, he said that in hindsight, he was happy that she was smart enough to see that they were kind of young and silly and immature at the time and that it wouldn't have worked out. Who knows if that was her motivation for fleeing from the wedding or if it was just because she really liked his best friend. <laughs> I think you always kind of no in that situation yeah but I feel like there is definitely a way to get out of a relationship without causing so much damage in your wake right and like hurting people more than necessary yeah she really like set a match to that relationship and then yeah <laughs> watched it burn down <laughs> so speaking of causing harm and damage and going out with a bang the movie opens With Julia Roberts running away on a horse. At first, I'm thinking this is like a flash forward. Like, Mm -hmm. is this a point near the end of the film? And then we're going to find out what led to this moment? No. No, that is literally the beginning of the film because it's her running away from her third engagement slash third wedding. Because sometimes the wedding and the engagement are separate. Yes. Yeah, exactly. 
Exactly. So, and we have a U2 song playing in the background. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, which like, could they hit the nail on the head any harder? (laughs) I feel like some of the musical choices in this film were either really straightforward or very ironic. Yes. Agreed. Well, there's also the man eater one, which like pissed me off. That song in general just pisses me off now. You know what? I should actually look at the lyrics of that song. I was too distracted by the scene that was going on while that song was playing. But it just, I got a bad feeling from like the very beginning because after the scene of her being on that horse running Mm -hmm. away, we have this scene of the guy from Pretty Woman as I wrote it down. And then I thought his name was Hank, but it wasn't Hank. It turns out to be Ike, like the candy. I didn't even know that was a real name. His actual full name in the movie is Homer Eisenhower. Eisenhower, the president, I think his nickname was actually Ike. I don't know how that translates to Ike as a nickname, but I think it does. It's like the whole Richard and Dick thing. Yeah. How do you get one from the other? Mind you, I shouldn't be talking because my culture, (laughs) (laughs) we're not the best with nicknames. Your nickname has nothing to do with your name. Okay. (laughs) But... I just don't understand how one came from the other. Not sure. The whole point is there's little arrows of me correcting myself. Because (laughs) at at this point, Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm going to get everyone's name right in this film. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to actually refer to people by their actual character names, not by the actor's name, not right. by like whatever reminds me of them, not by their occupation. Partially balding men. <laughs> yeah, or crazy scientist looking guy. Right. One of those. But that didn't last long. But at this point, I was still trying very hard. Mm-hmm. So it went from Hank and in brackets says pretty woman guy. And then there's a little arrow and it says nope. And <laughs> I put Ike. Graham. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you got it on the second try. Uh, really the third try. Okay. Well, I was trying to make you feel better, but sure. If we're going to be honest about it, you got it on the third try. The first time that we see him, he's walking along the streets of New York and he's talking on the phone like a douche. Yeah. And I'm immediately like, I don't like him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it just gets worse when he sits in the bar. Yeah. So what happens in this bar? So he's meeting up with this woman. Did he plan to meet up with her? She's just in the bar, I think, I at the time. very unclear about that. I wasn't too sure what was happening there, to be honest. And I should know, because it's not my first time watching this. But he's talking to this woman in the bar, and he's saying that he's got a newspaper deadline, a column deadline. And he seems to be a bit of a procrastinator, and he says that he gets his ideas for columns at the last minute. To which she then says he's a one-minute man, I think she changes it to. Yes. It was last-minute man, it's one-minute man, but that reminded me of Too Hot to Handle, season two, where somebody is then known as the 22nd guy. You can imagine where that comes from in a show like Too Hot to Handle. Don't tell me this guy is actually proud, like that other douchebag that was proud of being boyfriend size. Well, his dick being boyfriend size. Yeah. I don't think he was, you know, he didn't seem humiliated by it. (laughs) Was it, was it boyfriend-sized 
dick? Yeah. 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 Oh, okay. He well, called it boyfriend dick. Oh my God. Why do I know this? Right. It's just, like just useless can... information in my head. It's not useless. It's bumping off other useless, truly useless information like geography or history. I had to look up how to do like certain fractions (laughs) (laughs) or fractions. (laughs) So maybe that was it. (laughs) So I think Ike is trying to get some inspiration from this woman in the bar who senses his douchey energy and is not going to help him out. She leaves the bar. But he's also getting interrupted by crazy scientist looking dude. Yeah. Who I think his name is actually George. You see how long that lasted? I think we're only like 10 minutes into this film. (laughs) And it's just a crazy scientist looking guy. Yeah. He does kind of look like it though. Yeah. I think we find out later who he actually is. Yeah. But I think they did that on purpose. Yeah, yeah. He's supposed to look quite, I don't know, kind of off his rocker and flustered. And he's talking to Ike about a story that he has for him. And he says it's about this runaway bride from his town. And he says that she's performed this stint about seven to eight times and already has her next victim lined up. So Ike is clearly a very professional journalist. Would we not agree? Oh, yeah. I mean, taking the word of a, of a drunk, drunk, disheveled, scientist-looking Heartbroken. Dude, <laughs> yes. At a bar, taking his word as fact. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then going ahead and publishing that information without fact-checking. That can end perfectly well, right? Yeah. And I looked through this afterwards because I was like, there's no way that the movie wants us to believe that this could happen. But indeed it does. So I think he says at the beginning that he's got like two hours before his deadline. So this dumbass literally heard this brief story from the drunk and then wrote about it and submitted it to his editor all in two hours. You obviously can't fact check that in that amount of time. He did no extra work for it. He just inserted stereotypes, very sexist stereotypes about women in between. Oh, yeah. So this is the moment I knew for sure I wasn't going to like this film because... First of all, the only thing likable I found about this guy was that he had a cat and it was cute. And I think his name is Italics. Yeah, which is a cute name. Dude, which is a cute name. So I'll give him that. But his column is basically the Red Pill Forum on Reddit. Yes, exactly. For the audience, if you don't know what the Red Pill is, it basically starts off with the concept of the blue pill and the red pill in the matrix. This is, and I actually wanted to grab the actual definition of what the red pill means. Okay. Which I will provide to you, but my phone is only showing me pictures of my cat right now, so I need to find it. (laughs) Oh yeah, so I, we adopted a new cat. Yes. Yes. Not we as in the two of us together. (laughs) No, she just, Vanessa just tries to constantly catnap my kitty, but his name is Mochi, and I think we've only had him for like two weeks, uh, two weeks yesterday. Wow. Which is like insane, but we adopted him. We essentially saw a picture of him and within like three hours we had him, which is absolutely insane but we're very happy to welcome him into our family me too yes and now if he could just you know stop toppling my soups and trying to steal my dad's fish um <laughs> that would be great 
he he's an eater. He likes to eat. So does his Tia. He would probably eat us out of house and home if we let him, but we don't (laughs) because we feed him what he should be fed. So back to this shitty movie. The red pill is both a noun and a verb, but the noun is used to refer to a process by which a person's perspective is dramatically transformed, introducing them to a new and typically disturbing understanding of the true nature of a particular situation. This Reddit forum, it's essentially a place where men can go and find out the truth about what women are. And I'm, you can't see this, but I'm holding my fingers up like quotes. (laughs) What women are really like. And it's essentially the incel culture. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we tried to look up the red pill on Reddit to give you guys an insight of what type of posts they put. But Mm -hmm. Vanessa, what did we discover? It is now a private subreddit. So only moderators or approved submitters are allowed to look at that subreddit. Interesting. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the men are maybe a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> you don't say it should be embarrassing. You should yeah. be embarrassed and you should be ashamed. Yeah, exactly. It should be public so that we can shame you all. Okay. So right now I'm going to read a bit from a Vox article called Reddit's The Red Pill Notorious for Its Misogyny was created by a New Hampshire state legislator. And it's written by Aja Romano and it was published in April 2017. So much later than this film came out, there is a part here where it talks about marriage. Oh boy. Though at the time of his departure as a moderator of The Red Pill, Fisher... So they're referring to Robert Fisher, which at the time was a 31-year-old Republican lawmaker. Fisher said that he would not be participating further in the community. He remained semi-active in the forum until its outing by the Daily Beast. Under various aliases used across the internet, Fisher expressed his belief that women are unintelligent and argued that it's necessary to teach women consequence for leaving their marriages, a statement that reflects the most recent campaign promise to strengthen the family. I feel nauseous. I found that very interesting, especially considering all the shaming that Julia Roberts' character, Maggie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I wrote it down in my notes correctly. Keep saying Julia Roberts. (laughs) Went through during essentially the first half of like the film. Yeah. But also like there's the stuff that they actually say in the film. And I feel 100% this is something that would be in that now private forum. Mm -hmm. I would have been a lot prouder of Reddit if they just shut that shit down. So one of the things that uh, Mr. Ike Graham writes in Mm -hmm. his article that he wrote two hours before his column. Yes, his column was, every time I step out the front door, I meet fresh proof that the female archetypes are alive and well. The mother the virgin, the whore, the crone. And now he wants to, and I'm skipping a bit here, but now he wants to add the cheerleader, the co-ed, and the man-eater, who he later goes on to connect to Maggie, so Julia Roberts' character. And then he goes on to make connections to the goddess of death and various other deities that consume their lovers. 
mm-hmm. in some shape, way, or form. What did you think about that, Vanessa? I mean, this was the point where I realized this movie was not what I remembered it to be. Because you only watched the second half. <laughs> yeah. So I watched the half where he's like a little bit nicer. But the minute I watched this and I was thinking about what happens in the second half and I'm like, he never redeems himself for all of this vicious sexist slander that he writes in his column. And like, how can I possibly want him to end up with any woman when he writes shit like this? 100% agreed. Because it's not like there's a lot of time that passes between the beginning of the film and the the end of the film. No. And here I actually have another quote from the film. He writes, Maggie or this man-eater archetype of woman dresses men up as grooms before she devours them. So this is the sort of enlightening information Mm -hmm. that he is providing to his male column readers. Exactly. And did you write it down? Because I feel like I did and I just can't remember where it is now. But he writes for, what's what's the newspaper called? I don't remember. I saw it and now I can't remember. Is it a real newspaper? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) But it's a prominent one. I mean, he's writing from New York. So in any case, he's disseminating these ideas to a wide group of people. It's not just a little small town that he's writing for. No, especially if it's a major newspaper, it makes that information even that more detrimental. But to the point that it does reach Maggie, she does see this article. Who's in Maryland. It's become quite the phenomenon, this column. In the beginning, she thinks that it's a joke. Her friends like played... You would have to have absolutely vile friends for anybody to play this prank on you. They said, no, we agreed that there would be no bachelorette jokes this time or something like that. Yeah. Is this a common thing? I know. <laughs> they just like <laughs> mock her before she gets married for her previous failed engagements. Well, I think that do. does happen. <laughs> But I'm like, I didn't know that this was a thing. I would like to not have any bachelorette jokes, please. Not that I'm getting married or anything. But if I do. I think that's a fair statement. I would never do this. I don't think that a bachelorette party should be about humiliating Mm -hmm. the person who's about to get married. I think it should be about getting them alcohol poisoning, but not humiliation. If the humiliation is because they get alcohol poisoning and like throw up in inconvenient places, then that's okay. But not in like tearing down their character sort of humiliating, you know? Yeah, they end up doing that anyways. (laughs) Yeah, they do. They do lots of things. (laughs) So when she finds out that it's not some sort of prank and it's a serious article, she nearly passes out. And then she goes home. She's obviously understandably very upset by this. And she writes a response to the newspaper. She says in her response that there are many factual inaccuracies in the column. And she's asking basically that he be removed as a columnist for that paper. Which they do. Mm-hmm. But the period in between before they choose to do this is what, again, just astounds me. So number one, he is a journalist, but he has an editor. His editor is, as we learn, his ex-wife. It is astounding to me that any editor would have approved of this column, but especially considering she's a woman. I- and Maggie notes this in her response. Yeah, I agree. And one of the things that I did like write down was that she 
And the newspaper, by extension, was okay with publishing this very misogynist column and this dangerous messaging, really. They were okay with doing it up until the point that they were going to get sued. Yes. And like you said, it's even more disappointing knowing that the editor is a woman because as women, it it should be women supporting women. Yeah, exactly. But apparently that only comes into play when serious money is at stake. (laughs) And beyond just the sheer misogyny of the column, I think the fact that just as a journalist, he's not in any way competent at his job is shocking to me. So he somehow in this meeting with the editor when he's about to be fired or let go, he's trying to support himself by saying, I had a source. His source, of course, is the drunk person at the bar. That source was enough for him to not do any more fact-checking work. How is this possible? You're leaving your column up until two hours before it's due. You're at a bar instead of trying to sit down and write something. You've already set yourself up for a disaster. Yeah, I can't imagine somebody like, I'm a procrastinator, but this just, (laughs) this is your livelihood. I can't imagine doing that. And the fact that he thinks that he can get away with this with just a wrist slap is disgusting to me. So not only is he disseminating dangerous messaging, but he's not even doing his proper journalistic work of like fact checking and making sure he puts out a column that if nothing else is accurate in terms of the facts that are written in there. And he thinks that it's okay to just get a little wrist lap and go back to work and write the next next column. He's shocked that he's getting fired for this. And not only that, at some point later on in the film, he blames Maggie. Yes. For, <laughs> for him losing fired. his job. <laughs> and you're like, oh God, this is like, this is so red pill. This is so red pill. This is incel shit. Yeah, exactly. Just, <sighs> okay. So anyways, <laughs> he gets, let's get over the anger. He gets fired. Maggie's ecstatic that he's no longer writing that column. And we see her go to her now fiance and her fiance. Stabler. Is, yes, exactly. <laughs> I, he's like my favorite character in this movie, even though he's annoying in some respects. Yeah. I love watching that's not his name. That's not... Okay, first of all, Christopher Maloney is his actual name. <laughs> that is his. That is the actor's name. The character's name is... Bob. Bob. <laughs> what I wrote down for the remainder of the film was Stapler. And I think I also wrote down keeping this name. <laughs> oh, obviously, my commitment only lasted about 20 minutes. Wow. <laughs> so, so respectful. <laughs> The thing is, I I think I find it funny to see the actor that plays Stabler in Law & Order SVU in a role like this. Yes. So I found it so entertaining. Yes. So I just continued calling him Stabler. This is why I found him to be my favorite character in the movie. Not necessarily because he's the best person, but just because it's so funny to see him in this movie compared to what he's like in Law & Order SVU. But he's clearly into hiking and like climbing mountains and all that outdoorsy shit and he's everest he did twice (laughs) no oxygen (laughs) we flip to another scene and ike is talking to his ex-wife's current either it's her current boyfriend or 
husband. husband. Okay, they're married now. Princess Diaries. That's what I named him. Yeah, I actually love him as an actor. I love him. His name is Hector Elizondo, I believe. Yeah. He's great. I love him. I did not love his character. I love the actor. It's a shitty character. Yeah. Like the rest of the people in this movie. Yeah, that's just... it's par for the course for this one but he's in a lot of gary marshall movies and so he tells ike that he's gonna try to give him a second chance to save himself and to prove that the story even though there were some factual inconsistencies to prove that the story is true and so this is why i think we hate this character as well right because this man clearly did so much wrong and somehow he's still getting a second chance Yeah, but then also it's just another character, another male character that's feeding into this idea. Yeah. And it's just so disappointing and disturbing. Yeah. I find because like we do know that these sort of ideas are dangerous. Mm -hmm. Here in Toronto, we had a terrorist attack. Yeah. Where a man that had this incel ideology went and he murdered several women around the Young and Shepherd area, Young and Finch area. Driving on the sidewalks and running people down. Yeah, he specifically targeted women. And I think, yeah, definitely now is like a good time to kind of point out, hey, these may just be comments that you think can just be brushed off. But eventually when boys, when men hear this stuff enough and they and yeah. he talks about it as a theory, he says he wants to prove your theory right. They eventually become so ingrained that people start believing this. Yeah, exactly. And then they act based on those ideologies. Yeah. It's so dangerous. So we've just given him an opportunity to create more damage. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So in that spirit, (laughs) he goes down to Hale, Maryland, which is where Maggie Carpenter lives, to get more information for this story. And he goes into this hairstylist place looking for Maggie. And Maggie is in there. A hair salon? Yeah. (laughs) It's, you know what? It's been so long since. Since I've been to one that I don't know what it's called anymore. <laughs> well, okay. Hair salon. Hairstylist place. Whatever. <laughs> the place where the hairstylists go. And the hairstylist in that salon, I'm using the proper terminology, is Maggie's friend Peggy. Peggy and the other women who are in there don't recognize Ike at first as being the actual journalist who reported this terrible story, but Maggie recognizes him. And so she points her friend Peggy in the right direction, shows him the picture from the column, and then they decide to get a little bit of revenge by dyeing his hair a rainbow. You know what? I will say that was ahead of its time. Yeah. <laughs> because that whole coloring your hair like a unicorn yeah. mane, <laughs> like, it's it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It looks very nice on some people. I do have to say I follow some hairstylists on Instagram and yeah. they do it super well. Yeah. It must be really complicated to uh, do, actually. Yeah, but it also doesn't last very long. Yeah, I could see that. He only has this hair for this one scene. Yeah. And then it's like, poof, gone. Yeah. So I don't know how he got rid of it Yeah, so quickly. He does ask for where he can find shampoo, but like, I don't see that washing out very easily. But in the movie world, of course, yeah. it's like five seconds later. 
But as he's leaving the store, pissed off about his new hairdo, Maggie comes outside. And this is the point that you talked about earlier, where he basically blames her for him losing his job. Despite the fact that he published what Maggie says to be 50 factual inaccuracies, he got fired because he didn't do his job well. He didn't get fired because of her. Yeah, exactly. What was she supposed to do? This is where I wrote down the newspaper. USA Today. She was just supposed to sit down and let him slander her in a national newspaper? Are you serious? (laughs) She should have sued. I wrote this earlier. Like, I am upset that she never sued him. (laughs) I'm upset at this entire film. Yeah. Just the entire way all of this unravels. I'm extremely unhappy with it. Yeah. (laughs) So Ike tells her that he's here for vindication because in his heart, he knows that he's right about her, even though this is the first time they've met and his only information is coming from a drunk, heartbroken person in a bar who he talked to for like 30 minutes tops. But in his heart, he knows that he's right about her being a man-eater. He says he's not going to leave until Maggie runs away again. And because she has her upcoming wedding to Bob in can't be more than two weeks, probably less than that, he's going to sit it through until that wedding. So Maggie comes home and she finds, guess who there again? Ike. (laughs) Okay, remember when I said, like, everyone in this film is shitty? Yeah. There is... Maggie's father there, her grandmother, Mm -hmm. her fiancé, and they're all just chummy with this guy that just published things that were blatantly incorrect in a national newspaper. And on top of that, it's not like they didn't know that there were these inaccuracies. Yeah, exactly. They knew the truth. They knew that she didn't have eight weddings. Yeah, And they know this. I mean, they have proof of this because, and this is the other thing that upset me so much. They have it on tape and they like willingly show it to him. Well, they give him the tapes. Yes. (laughs) I was like, you're crappy people. First of all, what she was doing, like she hurt a lot of people. Agreed. She did. But this is your daughter. You're supposed to be protecting her, not handing over a grenade. Yeah. (laughs) To someone that very blatantly is set out to hurt and humiliate your daughter. Exactly. Like, oh. Just, it's very upsetting. We see in this scene a little bit of Bob and his sports psychology, which just comes off as very humiliating. But it's only funny because... Because of who he plays on Law and Order. But he's talking to her about visualizing the end zone and like focus on the prize, focus on Bob, focus on Maggie. <laughs> All I can visualize and focus on right now. So I'm looking at you directly. You look perfectly fine. But in my in my laptop, we still have our cameras on. Why? I'm not sure. But right now, the way that your legs are, it seems like you're like an ass. It seems like you're presenting to me. (laughs) Does it look juicy? (laughs) It does, actually. You've worked out your knees, apparently. Oh, wow. No, I could see what you're talking about. That does look good. How do I get my actual ass to look like that? Okay. (laughs) So we've got Bob and his sports psychology, but then we see Ike watching the videos that her family just happily handed over to him so there's been three weddings the first was to gill it was a very hippie sort of wedding and maggie ran away on a motorcycle 
The second was to Brian. Can I, there was also something else notable about that first Oh, letter. the crowd surfing to the altar? <laughs> but it's not even like she jumped off a stage. She bounced on a trampoline yeah. and then crowd decided surfed. to crowd surf. <laughs> Honestly, it looked like a lot of fun. <laughs> Actually, yes. Would I do that at my wedding? No. No. But it looked like fun. And then we have her wedding to Brian, which was a traditional church wedding. So she walked up the aisle and then she walked right back down the next aisle and ran out. And a little kid got dragged along the way because he was holding on to her train. (laughs) Yeah. So she almost ran away with a child, which then becomes kidnapping. Yeah, we got really close there to an actual felony. And the third was to George. And George is the crazy mad scientist man in the bar. And this is the one where she runs away on the horse. And that's how the movie opens up. My question is, why would you give her so many? (laughs) It's not that I fully support her right to run away from these weddings. But at the same time, I'm like, why would you make easy access for vehicles and other means to get away? Why would you give her that easy access? Like you're putting her on a horse. Horses can be unpredictable sometimes, too. And, like, you're just giving her an avenue to escape quickly. And the thing is, it's not even like this was her first wedding. This one was the third one. So they knew what came before. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So Ike is following her around everywhere. He's at the cake decorating place. He's at the football field with Bob. And Bob invites him to the wedding. And, like, again, just shitty family. Shitty. (laughs) Her fiancé is shitty. Everyone is so shitty. So shitty. (laughs) So Maggie starts to realize that he's going to target all of her previous fiancés, right? So she goes to the church and her second fiancé, Brian, is now a priest there. But she goes in there and she's talking to him and I think she's trying to like pre-warn him that Ike is going to show up and ask questions and she finds out that he already did show up. And an interesting thing that'll come up later is Ike asked Brian how Maggie liked her eggs when they were together. And we'll see that every time he asks that question of all of her previous fiancés and they all answer differently about how she likes her eggs. And this is the thing, I think at least the last scene in the movie, not the last scene, but the last egg scene in the movie, (laughs) that was their way of kind of tying together the script and explaining why she runs. It's just, I did find when I was watching this movie that I was like, it's like they are struggling to explain why she does what she does. It's almost as if they don't really have a clear idea when they were writing the script of what the reasoning was. And they just kind of came up with it on the fly. And if anything, how, you know, we'll get to it, but how they end up concluding it, it's more evidence that she should have taken a different path than she ended up taking. Yeah. But we'll get to that. We'll get there. Brian, he seems like he's happy with his current life now. He's a priest, but he does mention if she ever needs to come in for confession, he asks that Maggie please confess to another priest. So, I mean, first she needs to actually convert to Catholicism. Because she's not not even Catholic. (laughs) No, and he mentions that. He's like, you shouldn't even be here. But it seems like she did hurt him at the time, but he's okay now. So then she goes to visit Gil, who was her first fiancé, and Ike is already there at the mechanic shop where Gil works. It's clear in that scene there that she also hurt Gil quite a bit. At the time of that wedding, she had a tattoo on her back, and Gil thinks that she really loved that tattoo and that she still has it, and Ike is convinced that she was just doing it to please him. 
and we find out that it was just like um what's it called a, a, a stick, stick on. on there we go which if you're a person that has real tattoos i'm pretty sure you could have noticed the difference yeah <laughs> you would think but okay let, let's just go with this but what i found really off-putting of that scene was when she realizes that ike is there he's looking at a topless yeah. picture of her mm-hmm. yeah that scene bothered me a lot like number one why does gil still have a topless picture of her. Why would Gil then provide this topless picture of her to this journalist? He's just sitting there staring at it and won't give it back to her. And like just, he's staring at it creepily. It's gross. It's very gross. You know what? All the power to you. Like, you know, if you yeah. want to display, you know, your breasts. Like, yeah. I believe this picture was taken at some sort of Music festival, festival, I think. Something like that, where like this thing is common. But she was very noticeably uncomfortable and unhappy with the fact that Ike was looking at it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's her private, personal stuff. Shouldn't have just been handed around (laughs) without her permission. Yeah, that scene bothered me a lot, too. So Gil is devastated that Maggie didn't actually get a proper tattoo, doesn't have it anymore. So it seems like she has left a little bit of like emotional turmoil in her wake every time that she's left these guys at the altar. And Ike's also an asshole, though, because at the end of the scene, he also makes fun of Gil for his heartbreak. You've come here to prove that she's a man eater. And then you're making fun of the men who you believe she's basically chewed up and spit out. Also, what really bothers me about that, too, is that at least it seems that, you know, the first fiance and the second fiance had at that point kind of come to terms with what had happened. And then he comes along and kind of rips open these old wounds. For what? They already know that they were hurt. They don't need to be reminded on a national scale. It just, it doesn't make sense to me why they would be so open to helping him and sharing all that information with him. Actually, that was a really big issue that I had with this film. The characters' actions, and as you've mentioned, their motivations don't make sense. Reasonable people, or just people in general, don't behave in this way. No. This scene really bothers me. Ike shows up to the baseball game, and he goes to talk to Peggy. And Peggy's husband is playing in the actual baseball game, right? And we find out that Peggy's husband and Maggie used to date. Peggy seems to actually be a little bit disturbed by the relationship between Maggie and her husband, Corey. Which kind of comes out of nowhere, I feel. Yeah. It comes up in the conversation with Ike, but all that really happens between Maggie and Corey is that like she high fives him, I don't know, slaps him on like the side of the body or something. And he calls her Magpie. He's got like a nickname for her that Peggy says she finds a bit annoying. I feel like the whole purpose of this scene was just to like... For that that stereotype of Maggie being like this flirtatious man eater, <laughs> sort yeah, of thing. That, that's out to take all of your men, right? That exactly. sort of thing. Peggy talks about it with Maggie later on in the salon, and she says says a couple of things, but she's like, "Now that you know that you're kind of flirtatious like this, maybe it's time that you commit to someone of your own." And she also tells Maggie that she can't help it; she just has a lot of flirtatious energy that tends to land on anything male that moves. I'm really glad that you brought this up because I also did not like this scene, and from at least from what we saw. 
There wasn't anything that was, it didn't seem flirtatious or sexual to me. Yeah, it just seemed like two people that have known each other for, what, 20 years? Exactly. And as as Peggy admitted, they were all friends for quite some time. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, they'd previously dated, but that was years ago. And that was before, obviously, Peggy started dating Corey and then married him. I just... I feel like this is not to discount people's feelings about certain situations, but I feel like this scene was deliberately inputted into the movie to kind of make Maggie look a little bit more like a man-eater and support Ike's theory. (laughs) Exactly. Literally try to forcefully make her fit into this man-eater archetype. Exactly. I don't think it's a legitimate reaction from Peggy that really makes sense. It doesn't make sense because it kind of comes out of nowhere and then it just completely disappears. And then not only that, I mean... If she has an issue with her husband calling her best friend Magpie, which is it's not a it's a nickname, whatever. That's something she should bring up with her husband. Yeah, exactly. Instead of it being Maggie's fault. Seems like she's just jealous of Maggie's personality. Yeah. That's a you issue. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it seems like. This scene became even more bothersome to me later on in the movie when we see Ike with his ex-wife. They're playing the piano. I don't know if you remember this scene. And he's asking her why they broke up. And then he kisses her on the cheek and he's kind of got his arm around her. And her current husband, Fisher, walks in and he makes a little joke about the two of them being so close. And I'm like, so excuse me. Maggie, there was an issue there with Maggie because she congratulated Corey on a good play in the baseball game. Nothing overly flirtatious or sexual, I would say. That's not okay. That's her being overly flirtatious with other men. But when Ike is close with his ex-wife and is still friends with them and friends with Fisher as well, so they're all, you know, three-person friend group, and he kisses his ex-wife on the cheek and they play piano together, that's okay. One of those seems a little bit more problematic than the other. Right? Like a lot more. But you know what the difference is? Ike's a man. man. (laughs) Yeah. And women should be feared because they're manipulative Mm -hmm. and apparently out there to consume (laughs) men. Like, whatever. Yeah. But men cannot, can do this stuff because, what, they don't have any ulterior motives? Like, yeah. what the hell? Yeah, it, it, makes, it makes no sense to me. But we continue with that idea that Maggie is very flirtatious and gets all of the guys to fall for her when we see her going to the inn or the hotel, whatever you call it, in a small town where Ike is staying while he's reporting on this story. And she gets the hotel clerk to give her the keys to Ike's room. And he seems to very willingly do so because he's in love with Maggie. She goes up to Ike's room and she's snooping around there and she sees a whole bunch of post-it notes with unflattering messages about her that Ike has written down for the purposes of a story, including notes like, how could she get all those men to propose? She's not that beautiful. Yep, I saw that one. And so Ike catches her in the room, but she escapes through the window before he can do anything. And so later you see Maggie looking at, she's collected the post-it notes and she's staring at them and she's clearly emotionally disturbed by all the stuff that he's written down. And one of them in particular said she shows no remorse. Yeah, I also wrote that one down. And I'm like, how do you know you don't 
know her. Yeah. But not only that, why would Maggie be vulnerable in front of this man who's very intent on destroying her reputation? Yeah. And humiliating her. Yeah. A reasonable person doesn't want to be vulnerable. No. No, not with somebody that they don't trust. <laughs> and here's where I just don't understand the next scene. It doesn't make sense based on normal expression of human emotion. She is obviously disturbed by what he's written down. And so then she decides that she's going to talk to him and give him the full story so that he doesn't write anything inaccurate. And she says she'll do it for $1,000. They negotiated down or Ike negotiates it down to 650 which is just way too fucking low frankly she should have sued him in the first place for this but like I just don't think anybody would actually do this and seeing everything that he's written you would decide you know what I'm gonna give him full access (laughs) yeah this is like movie logic it's literally the writers forcing the characters to do something so that they can get to like the next point in the plot. Yeah. It doesn't have to make sense. No. And it doesn't. And like we see that in that next scene, you know, so now she's cooperating with him and she's telling him about Bob's proposal, which was on the Jumbotron, which is the only time I agree with Ike. Don't think it's romantic, but to each their own. (laughs) No, but I agree with this. Like I agree with the fact that don't do this. Like guys don't do this. Just, Unless, for some reason, it's whoever you're proposing to, they're, like, a super fan. Like, yeah. an insane, like, super fan. And you know for sure the other person is going to say yes. All these public proposals just put all these, I'm going to say women, because mm-hmm. it's most often yeah. women they're getting proposed to. But it's all it's doing is putting them in a situation where they're forced to either say yes. Yeah. Do the proposal mm-hmm. or humiliate a person that they, they care probably, for they care for in front of a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people. A baseball stadium is huge. <laughs> yeah. So there's just so many issues at this. So many issues. But we see the writers of this movie trying to force the two of them together here. He touches her hand at a certain point to look at the ring, which is a number one. Uh, okay that was not my favorite of her engagement rings yeah i think i think it was like the second one kind of brian's that you probably like the best because it was the most normal yeah exactly but they were all kind of weird weird yeah yeah so he touches her hand and you see she kind of like that look in her face like she's attracted to him And then he tells her what he thinks is a more romantic proposal and you can see in her eyes that she's falling for him And this is where I gagged. (laughs) And then we have another scene that really upset me because it's a callback to Pretty Woman, but it's so much less satisfying because it's not her who does it. It's him who like gets something for her. So they're in the dress maker shop, whatever. Notice how I never refer to any shops properly. (laughs) Hairstylist place, dressmaker shop place. Uh, So she means like the bridal boutique. There we go. That's the one. (laughs) Because she has extra money now from Ike, she wants a fancier dress than what she initially had selected, right? And you would think that the sales associate would be all on board for this because it's more money for her. But she's like, no, Maggie, I think that's a lot of money for one of your dresses that you're only going to be in for about 10 minutes. And you see Maggie kind of 
again, she's been insulted mm-hmm. so much during the course of this movie. And she just kind of takes it and she goes off to the corner and sits down and she's like, yeah, you know, you're probably right. And Ike, of course, has to step in and, and save the day. Yeah. And he's like, she wants this dress. So get her this dress. And I think it's supposed to be a callback to the pretty woman scene where she has an issue in a clothing store. But in this one, it's Ike who's saving her. And I just, I find it gross. On top of all of the other misogynistic things that are said and done in this movie, this scene just upsets me even more. Yeah. I have to admit, I wasn't fully paying attention (laughs) to this scene. I think it was just because of everything that had happened right before, I was just really put off. And I kind of tuned out for a moment. It's just... You know, once there's just so much shit on top, piled on top of shit, mm-hmm. that it doesn't even make you angry anymore because it's just at the end of the day, it's still just a pile of shit. Yeah. You know what, everyone? Take a shot every time we've said shit. <laughs> <laughs> shit, 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 shit. <laughs> in this in this episode. But it didn't stand out to me personally because yes. it was maybe even like less worse than what we had seen before. Yeah, oh, f- for sure. Yeah. For sure. It's less worse. I just found that like, you know, of course she couldn't do it herself. <laughs> she needed a man to save her in this situation. And so then we have a couple more scenes which really made no difference to me because they're trying to force this relationship between the two of them. And as much as the two of them have decent chemistry with one another, I just can't buy any of this. I can't buy that she would fall for him. I can't buy that they are, should be together in any way. Yeah, I'm not even really buying his interest in her, to be honest. Yeah. I watched this, but I can't even really recall what happened. I think the car breaks down or something. Like, it's not even worth mentioning. No, it's not. It's not. Because it makes no difference. No, because he's still a shitty person and he's never, and this is the thing that upsets me the most, he has never apologized in the course of this movie for what he wrote about her. It's just like, oh, it happened and now he feels sympathy for her and her life and he understands her more and he wants to be with her. I'm sorry, where was the, the, I'm sorry in there? (laughs) Absolutely nowhere. It never came up and it does not exist. So after the scene of them, the car breaks down and they have like moments or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to be romantic and relationship building, whatever. Ike, he goes off to New York to interview the third fiance. Yeah. It's from the third wedding, which we confirm is the guy from the bar. Yeah. So if you had fact checked, you might (laughs) have been able to tell that your source is a little biased. Just a tiny bit. Might have a personal stake in what's said about Maggie. Like, at this point, I I did write down, I'm like, why do you think she ran? Because I'm still wondering that throughout this entire film, why is she running away from, like, all these weddings? I don't know. And it's something by the end of the film, like, I still isn't fully answered, as you've pointed out. But I'm still wondering, because after every time they speak to one of the fiancés, I'm like... Why? (laughs) Why? (laughs) I agree a thousand percent. It's not really fully answered. I think the best answer they give is in the last scene and she gives the answer herself. And even then it feels like it's kind of a band-aid solution to the problem. The fact that the script has never really (laughs) 
turned its attention to the motivation for what she does. <laughs> the next scene is the one that you described earlier about oh. Ike. like Cozying it up with his ex-wife. Yeah, but he does apologize to her. Yeah. So yeah. the first woman he apologizes to, the only woman he apologizes to <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> After that scene, we move on to the luau, which I'm thinking is supposed to be the rehearsal dinner. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And people made some toasts. I don't understand how this is acceptable in any way on a day that you're supposed to celebrate a happy event. And people are just tearing her down. (laughs) Yeah, these people are supposed to be people that care about her. And yet every one of them is cracking a joke about her running away from her other weddings. You can tell that she's noticeably hurt, but that's also awkward for the fiance that's there. I think throughout the film, we see moments where he's obviously worried that she's going to run away. He's optimistic that she won't. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the reason for all that sports psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's worried that she's not going to make it through the full wedding with him. (laughs) It's very awkward, but then Frankly, what Ike does is even more awkward. And I understand her frustration with him afterwards because he turns to her and he asks her if she's okay as she's being criticized by all her family and friends. And then when it's his turn to give a toast, he criticizes the rest of them. And he's like, I hope the rest of you have your faces thrown in the bad shit that you've done in your lifetime, blah, blah, blah. But then they go on to still like him. I don't not understand why all the characters in this film like him. I just, I don't understand. The people who wrote this don't seem to understand how human emotions are generally expressed. <laughs> yeah, or like how human relationships work. Yeah. So Maggie is upset with him for humiliating her even more during this rehearsal dinner because I think in her mind she thought, I can handle the criticism from the other people. I've heard it three times before already, but then you're just drawing even more attention to it now and embarrassing me even further. But what I'm thinking in my head is he said vicious, vile things about her without even knowing her in a national newspaper. Mm -hmm. And now he's criticizing other people who at least do know her. (laughs) I'm like, you're just as bad, if not worse than the rest of them. I actually struggled in this scene to figure out which one, either Ike or these group of people that made toast, which included her like father and stuff, was worse because one, it's, you know, obviously the scale of what was said about her in the article. But on the other hand, I think sometimes it's worse to hear this stuff from people that you care about. Yeah. And knowing that that's what they think of you. I mean... It's also very difficult because it's also true, Mm -hmm. but that's neither the time nor the place to do it. No. And these are things that they actually never even really address with her outside of these toasts. Yeah, exactly. like, are you sure you should go through with this, you know, really evaluate this upcoming marriage before you get to the aisle? No, nobody does that. They don't have those good private talks that lead to personal growth. They just criticize her in public in front of lots of other people that she knows. What also bothered me about the scene where Maggie is confronting Ike about 
about how she was embarrassed was that in this situation, Ike is telling her all these things about what she should want as if he knows her. This is what I wrote down. Like, <laughs> yes. He's like, I know what you want. You want, oh, some bullshit about like a sunset on a beach. And then you want a partner who wakes you up early and you have like early morning, meaningful converse, something how the like fuck that. do you know? That's what I wrote. I'm like, you've known her literally for, I'm being generous if I say a week. So you're telling her that she's lost and she does her what she does to please other men, but it's not really what she wants deep down. How are you any better than any of the other men? Because you're just feeding bullshit into her mouth about what she wants without actually knowing what she wants. How are you any different? (laughs) It made me so angry because it was literally is in the process of creating the exact situation that she has gotten herself into. Three Four other times. times. Four, Four other times. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Yeah. So Maggie does have a moment after this horrendous rehearsal dinner where she kind of stands up to her family and their jokes during breakfast one morning. And she says, you know what, dad, you might not like that I've run for multiple weddings, but I don't like that you're always drunk. I would have enjoyed this scene if it wasn't for the fact that the movie is making us think that she's doing this because Ike talked some sense into her the night before. They're making it seem like she's absolutely incapable of growing as a person outside of this relationship with a man. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's the one who needs to help her see the light because otherwise... (laughs) So they have their actual rehearsal, though, in the church. And this is where things get a little bit complicated. So Bob, in his infinite wisdom, decides that he's going to walk Maggie down the aisle. And Ike is going to be the husband. (laughs) Ike is going to play Bob. And suddenly, as Maggie's walking down the aisle and she's looking into Ike's eyes, she realizes that she's not afraid. And she walks down very calmly and very assuredly. And then she kisses him. Or he kisses her, he leans in, she reciprocates the kiss. Well, essentially, they they kiss each other. Yes. They kiss each other, and I cringe so hard. My reaction was essentially Peggy's reaction in this scene. Yes. She she goes, no! Because <laughs> she's like, no, no, fuck. For different reasons. <laughs> Yeah. Or, and they actually, they do clarify. They say they kissed each other back. Yeah. But I just cringe so hard because this kiss is smack with Stabler's face, like <laughs> right there. Like there's her face, there's Stabler face, like in the middle because he's like yeah. facing them because he's pretending to be the priest. And yeah. then there's Ike. Yeah. And then he's watching this. <laughs> Very closely. And he, he, at first he kind of like thinks maybe it's not a problem. I think he's in shock. Stapler is in shock. And he's like, okay, Maggie, you were just visualizing me. And that's why you kissed Ike. And Ike, it had to be you. You, I don't know what you're thinking, but you're the one who fucked up. And then of course he realizes that the two of them apparently like each other. Or to be more clear, as they express to each other outside of the church after, they both love each other. I'd like to remind everyone that it's been no more than a week. You know what? Everyone's probably heard this sound a lot. That is the sound of me hitting myself on the head with my mic. That's what's been happening. (laughs) 
entire <laughs> recap that we're doing. I don't know how many times I wrote this. Shitty people you're supposed to like. This is shitty. Shitty people underscored. And I put like, what the fuck is happening? They do not love each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Peggy leaves and Stabler punches Ike. Well deserved. Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted and, to see that happen a couple more times. And then he leaves. And then Maggie's friend chases after him to give him her phone number. And Maggie's just okay with this. This man that she was just about to spend the rest of her life with. She's right. just like completely fine with this. And yeah. everyone, everyone's like fine with this. And I'm like, these are not how real people react to this mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. And everyone seems to also be completely okay with what Maggie just did. Yeah. They probably know Bob Stabler, whatever his name is now. They probably know him and care about him. Mm-hmm. None of this is okay. And not only that, they're still okay with this guy that just came in out of nowhere and kind of just trampled over everyone's lives. Yeah. And they're also okay with the fact, everybody is okay with the fact that they're just going to have the wedding at the same time. We're just going to swap out the grooms. Oh, yeah, because Ike just goes on to tell Maggie that they should get married because they love each other. They don't love each other. You've known each other for a week and half of that time, more than half of that time, you've spent hating each other. There's a fine line between love and hate, apparently. This movie really capitalizes on that phrase. (laughs) There's still like 30 minutes left to this film after this. And this is where I emotionally clocked out. I mean, I emotionally clocked out a while ago, but I guess angry emotions are still emotions. So maybe not. But at this point here, I was just like, I can't wait for it to be over. So we have some scenes where they're developing their relationship. Just before the, the they montage, get the famous developing a relationship yeah. montage by Got playing it. cards, et cetera, et this, cetera. This is happening over the course of two days. Yeah, 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 exactly. Reasonable. And so then we have the actual wedding and Bob is supportive, apparently, of this wedding. Keep in mind that he was just dumped. <laughs> <laughs> People don't react like this. No, they do not. They do not. (laughs) Doesn't he also go on to give Ike advice on how to get Maggie to not run away? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember the advice? No. (laughs) One piece of advice, which was make eye contact. He had one job, maintain eye contact with her. And what ends up happening? (laughs) What is the reason they don't maintain eye contact for that second? Oh, someone brings a flash camera. Okay, that's it. And she has to blink and the sound and everything else. And so she loses sight of her groom for a second and she's thrown completely off guard. So she's made it down the aisle, but she lost eye contact and now she's about to run. So at this point in the movie, we believe that the reason she is running is because she has not been able to make continuous eye contact with her fiancés as she walks down the aisle. This is the reason. Honestly, this could be a perfectly valid reason based on everything that we've seen so far. Because they still haven't explained why yet. <laughs> but yeah, she she does run away. I get chases after her. Rips off her veil. This I found really disturbing, actually. It was like he was going to physically restrain her. He was going after her pretty aggressively, <laughs> I to be honest. I don't know. <laughs> it was disturbing to me, but lots of scenes in this movie are disturbing. There's a great ad for FedEx, though. Oh, yeah. Someone paid money for that. Yeah. 
So Maggie flees, and then we have some scenes where Maggie, I guess, learns more about herself. And the pivotal scene that's supposed to explain it all is where she's got like five different plates of eggs set out before her. She's trying to figure out what kind of eggs she actually likes, irrespective of what her partner likes. You see, this is good. I would have liked for the movie to have ended this way. Yes. It would have been, yes, girl, figure yourself out outside of a relationship with a man. Yes. Figure out what you like. Don't just figure out what eggs you like. Because there are other things in the world that are really a little bit more important. A little bit. I mean, the egg thing is important. But yeah, there are other things that are arguably more important. And I just want to mention here, it's a very random side note, but I have actually found out sometimes the eggs that I really like by copying other people's orders. I never realized that I liked over easy or over medium eggs until I was sharing a breakfast platter with a friend. And I guess you could have had the eggs cooked two different ways, but I didn't want to make it complicated. So I just said, yeah, over easy, over medium is fine. And I ended up loving them. And I would actually list them as one of my top ways to have eggs now. I like oh. eggs Benedict. I do too. Yeah. Like that would be my top. I like <laughs> eggs most ways, to be honest. I also like just hard boiled, not hard boiled, soft boiled or medium boiled eggs. Yeah. Very good. I like scrambled. I like omelet. I like all of it is good. good. But in this case here, I think it's very important that, you know, she explore not just the egg side of thing, but like other important life stuff. I know it was supposed to represent her figuring herself out, but Maybe if the next scene had taken place a year later, Mm -hmm. this would have been a little bit more significant. Yeah. But it doesn't. No. Do we know when it takes place? It must be like a few days. It has to be. Yeah. Well, that's a problem. So she's back at Ike's place. She's broken in in his apartment in New York. And she wants to tell him that the reason she left was because she didn't know who she was and what she wanted. And when she went to marry him, he knew her, apparently, after only knowing her for a week. But she didn't know herself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see some problems with that. So then she proposes to him using the same language that he once used with her. To me, this just sounds like pleasing another man based on what he likes. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. <laughs> and then they slow dance and we have a scene of like them in the future getting married. Uh, having a very small wedding with a priest. Yeah. And this is something that I did write down at some point. Why did they not ever think, hey, maybe big weddings kind of freak her out. Yeah. Maybe it has something small and private at a courthouse. I think I wrote down a courthouse, but... You know, they decided to go in a field, but okay. And the other thing was, it's like, no one thought that she would get freaked out by a quickie wedding. None of these decisions make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, why does he want to get married to her so quickly? It's not like he was even particularly looking to settle down with anyone. Nope. I don't understand. I do not get this movie. You know what I really want to know at the end of this movie, though? I'm looking at his apartment, and it's in New York, and it's got a really big balcony and nice doors that open up to the living room, and it looks quite large. And I just want to know how much he pays to live there. Does he rent? Does he own? If he owns, how is he supporting himself, given the fact that he lost his job? That's actually never addressed either, is it? No, but... 
those are things that actually involve decent writing to answer. We don't have that. No, but I do like that apartment. (laughs) (laughs) But the movie finishes off with them actually getting married. Mm -hmm. She survives through the whole wedding. (laughs) Yeah, she. so she's married. No one has to get married, okay? It's not a necessity anymore. It's not like we're living in, like, medieval times or something no but then they start playing the very ironic you can't hurry love oh (laughs) (laughs) that's how the film ends yeah you know that's a really good catch i didn't think about that it sure seems like this particular love was quite hurried yeah (laughs) just a touch (laughs) illogical hurried same diff Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm I'm sure this is going to end very well. Oh, this, yeah, this marriage. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So (laughs) that brings us to the end of this movie. Thank God. So what would you, actually, you're supposed to be asking this. Yeah, you know, I think the script has really been flipped here. So what would you rate the movie out of 10? Probably like a four or five. Okay, yeah, I'm going to say the same thing. I'm going to say a five. I just absolutely can't stand the script. I can't stand the characters in the movie. I can't stand the fact that they never thought to flush out what the characters' motivations are. Maybe we should clarify what the motivation she she gives for why she ran away. Oh, I think I mentioned that before, no? That she didn't know who she was and what she wanted? I'm not 100% sure, but I'm sure I'll find out when I'm editing this. (laughs) So I think her motivation, as it's explained, as she explains it to Ike in that scene, is that she didn't know who she was or what she wanted. And she ran away from the last wedding to Ike because he knew who she was, apparently, after only a week. But she did not. So she had to go through that process of Uh, self-discovery. Yes, yes. You might have said that. Yeah. (laughs) So I rate this very low. And again, I find it kind of funny because I was hoping that this would be one of those episodes where I tortured you, but didn't really torture myself too much. It really backfired, didn't it? Yeah. So I just want to warn the listeners out there. This is like a life lesson in general. It doesn't just apply to this episode. Sometimes methods of torturing other people don't work out well for you yourself, the torturer. So you want to make sure that what you choose has been well thought out, that you've done the research, and that you're not making a mistake because sometimes you end up hurting yourself just as much as you hurt the other person. And it's okay to hurt other people, but it's not okay to hurt yourself. It's important that you have respect for yourself above all else. Thank you, Vanessa. That's a very valuable life lesson you added in some things Yeah, that I probably wouldn't have. That's okay. Th- th- that's, that's called fun. a difference of opinion. Okay. I would not rewatch this film. You Ultimately. know, <laughs> I don't think I would ever again either. <laughs> not even snippets of it. You know what? That brings us to a very twist ending to this season. We've had so many episodes. Well, okay. So many episodes is an exaggeration, but we've had episodes where We've both agreed that we ended up liking something. Mm-hmm. We've had episodes where either I didn't like it and you really liked it, or I really liked it and you didn't. We have not yet had an episode where we both ended up hating the thing. 
Yeah, I think that usually has to go with the premise of the show where if one of us is forcing the other to watch something, it's most likely because we actually like it. Yeah. This is one of those situations where I just remembered this movie. I knew it was a Julia Roberts movie. I knew you didn't like Julia Roberts. (laughs) And I was like, perfect. Make her sit through two hours of torture. And then I realized this movie is a load, a steaming pile of shit (laughs) and it still stinks yeah you can't clean it off of you for a while interesting way to cap off the season yeah if you want to find out when our next season's coming out or stay updated on any of our potential mini episodes tbd (laughs) yeah (laughs) we're not making any promises it requires too much work obviously we can't fulfill deadlines (laughs) We set them ourselves and we just keep on moving them depending on how we're feeling. Yes. But you can find out by following our Instagram, which is at I Made Her Watch Pod, or our Twitter account, which is at I Made Her Watch. But we will let you know this much. The first episode of the next season will be something that we're going to choose and watch together. I think that's what Mm -hmm. we've decided. Yeah. And then we will do the same thing that we did this season and spin that wheel and find out who's going to be the first torturer of the season. Guys, get ready for Too Hot to Handle season two. I promise you it will be on there for your listening entertainment you literally learned nothing like from this experience that we just had five seconds ago no because i am watching season two and i love it okay then you'll learn nothing from (laughs) what happened several episodes ago if you want to find out what happened please tune in and watch episode three and follow that with episode four which i dub the episode where I get my revenge and it was oh so sweet it was not sweet oh it was it was very painful but obviously you still didn't learn your lesson so here we are yeah (laughs) I look forward to what my revenge what your revenge is (laughs) Alrighty, guys we will see you guys whenever we get to it really tbd (laughs) (laughs) okay bye bye Yeah, you know, Vanessa, if you actually want to make anything out of OnlyFans, you should probably start recording first. All my good content just got <laughs> lost because it wasn't recorded. <laughs> God damn it.